This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Thursday, February the 2nd, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Sherry Hanley from Community Food Centers Canada explores the ongoing issue of food insecurity. Lisa Arneson tells you, and Don Dickinson is a preview of McLean's Magazine with an article about Canada's opioid crisis. Certainly something that is very much in the news with it out by BC's coroner. Speaking of the news and speaking of health issues, let's get to the top story of the day. The Liberal government is expected to introduce a law today that will delay the extension of eligibility for medically assisted dying to people whose sole condition is mental health related. Emily Javesky has more. The federal government's expert panel on medical assistance in dying and mental illness said last May that further delay wasn't needed. But Justice Minister David Lametti has said the federal government has heard concerns that Canada's health care system might not be prepared for the expansion. The Liberal government agreed to expand eligibility in its 2021 update to assisted dying law after senators amended the bill to include it, arguing that excluding people with mental illness would violate their rights. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press. And of course, while you're talking about health care, Canada's premiers are set to meet with the federal government next week in Ottawa to discuss health care funding. New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs says he is optimistic the provinces and federal governments will come to an agreement. Higgs believes the provinces should still have substantial independence in how they deliver services. But I think you need to leave it up to the provinces on how we achieve that level of performance because uh, that becomes um, you know, more sensitive to some than others. But I don't think the federal government should dictate to us that we have to do it in this manner. I think they just should say, okay, let's agree on access to primary care. Let's agree on timelines that are standards in the country for waiting for, let's say, hip and knee surgery. Ontario Premier Doug Ford feels the meeting next week will just be a first step. Well, obviously, we aren't going to strike a deal on the 7th, uh, but we should be striking a, a deal shortly thereafter. We can't keep dragging this on when uh, we're all feeling pressure in, in health care. B.C. Premier David Eby thinks the federal government will make a reasonable offer in negotiations. I'm optimistic going into this meeting uh, that uh, the federal government will present a reasonable deal uh, that, that will form the basis of discussion. And, uh, and that we deliver for British Columbians. British Columbians do not want to see the federal government and the provincial government in a bun fight about health care dollars. They want to see us deliver for them. In another health care story, emails show employees at federal departments in charge of providing emergency pandemic help were caught off guard by a request for assistance from Saskatchewan during the height of the fourth wave. Kelly Malone has that story. Documents obtained under freedom of information laws show employees at Public Safety Canada and the Canadian Armed Forces were surprised in October 2021. Saskatchewan Health Minister Paul Merriman had sent a letter to then Federal Health Minister Patty Hyde requesting help. It was unexpected because the Provincial Health Minister had recently turned down an offer for federal support. 
and emails show there was no indication that a formal request would be on the horizon. The Saskatchewan government has not responded to a request for comment. Kelly Malone, the Canadian Press, Saskatoon. In about an hour and 45 minutes, Don Dickinson will have an article from Maclean's magazine that discusses the opioid crisis in Canada. Well, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev says he would axe drug decriminalization as Prime Minister. Polyev responded to the joint plan by BC and Ottawa to allow possession of small amounts of hard drugs. Polyev pointed to the existing conditions in Vancouver. You not only need to take a walk down the streets of East Vancouver, where addicts lay face first on the pavement, where people are living permanently in tents and encampments. The pilot project in BC has been underway for two days. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media is where you find the show on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find the show on Facebook. On Wednesday, you were asked, have you ever donated money to a political party or politician? 26% of you said yes, 74% of you said no. JR tweets in at Accessible Media, does Wikipedia count as a political party? Ha ha ha! They are honestly the only organization I've ever donated money to that would be close to politics, only because they explain what politics are and many other words that you may need to help understanding. I like Wikipedia. Carl tweets in, the Green Party. And John tweets in, they, rich enough sooner or later, they be taking my money away. <laughs> Thank you to everybody who chimed in at Accessible Media on Twitter and at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can always get involved in the comments section and broaden out your thoughts, and we're happy to read them on the air. Today's Daily Poll requires a little bit of setup. So... Australia is phasing the British monarchy out of its paper currency. Ben Thomas has the story. Australia's central bank says King Charles III will not be on the new $5 bill. Instead, a new indigenous design will replace the portrait of Queen Elizabeth II. The Reserve Bank says the move honours the culture and history of the first Australians. The $5 bill was Australia's only remaining banknote to still feature an image of the monarch. However, King Charles is still expected to appear on coins. Opposition leader Peter Dutton panned the move, likening it to changing the date of Australia Day. I'm Ben Thomas. This story got me thinking about the Canadian perspective and how little I actually look at the cash in my wallet. You probably know this, but here are a couple of notes about what appears on Canadian paper currency. The $5 bill, well, that's Wilfrid Laurier, and the Canadarm, too. The $10 bill, this is a new one, Viola Desmond and the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. The $20 bill, you for sure know this, it's Queen Elizabeth II and the Vimy Ridge Memorial. The $50 bill, Mackenzie King and a map of the North. And the $100 bill is Robert Borden, a DNA double helix and a vial of insulin. So that's what's on our paper money. And it got me thinking in today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. I'm sure there'll be no controversy as I ask you this. How would you feel about changing who or what appears on Canadian currency? Good, bad, or I don't care because I'm sure there are some of you who legitimately do not care. Maybe you don't even carry cash anymore. You don't even look at it. I was having this thought, thinking about the Australian story, replacing the monarchy with something of Indigenous representation on the bill. 
And it got me thinking about people on money more generally. I would argue that maybe we need a complete and total rethink of what goes on our money. I, I, I like these things about vial of insulins and double helixes and maps of the north and the Vimy Ridge Memorial, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. There's something about that accoutrement that makes a lot of sense on our money. But I would even go a step further and say, let's take people off our money completely because People are complicated. Their histories can be good and their histories can be bad, no matter what century they were from. And it's pretty hard to find consensus on people who are outright beloved. So what if we started considering just putting famous Canadian landmarks on our money and maybe keeping some of these Canadian innovations on them as well? So think about things like the Rockies. Think about things like Peggy's Cove. Think about the ocean. I wonder if there is a way in which we can represent Canada on our currency that isn't about people, but rather about the places that make the country special. Alex Smythe, what do you think? Yeah, Dave, I'm 100% in agreement with you. So I, I guess uh, in terms of the poll, I would feel good about changing it. And uh, part of the reason why this whole uh, thing started with, with the Australian currency is the fact that, you know, when you start printing new currency, when you have a new monarch, you have to adjust. You don't print, uh, continue printing the uh, the coins and the bills with the uh, now deceased monarch. So uh, if if there was ever a time to do it, it would be now. And I, I agree. I love having the you know, the Canada Arm, the Human Rights Museum, Vimy Ridge, the Double Helix. I think it speaks to something of, okay, these are Canadian innovations. These are, are moments and achievements of Canadians rather than the people, especially in the past 10, 15 years. I mean, we really had a, a broader discussion on what does it mean to celebrate individuals, especially people from the past. As you mentioned, people are complicated. The times are complicated. Whereas there's less, I, I guess, um, issues around the the achievements of Canadians. So you can still celebrate uh, great Canadians who did great things, but focus on their achievements less than the people themselves, you know? And so, you know, like the bio of insulin, great Canadian innovation mm -hmm. discovery, let's celebrate those more. And I, I like the idea of doing the um, of doing the geographical celebration as well. I'm trying to just do the quick math in my head. Uh, I, I think there's just a few, we, we would be leaving out one or two uh, provinces or territories, but I would have figured, okay, maybe we did one for each province and territory so they're all represent our entire country is represented geographically mm -hmm. in all of our currency but i think with with the penny going it it takes it off uh, a couple but there, there's uh, ways that, that, there, that would be the idea i would go for. yeah there, there's ways to think about it regionally as well right that the rockies would represent alberta and bc because they stretch either side if you did something in the prairies even if you had something like like a wheat like a shaft of wheat you know, like like to say, hey, we're thinking about farmers in the prairies and here's a shaft of wheat that would cover Saskatchewan, Alberta and Manitoba. There, there's certainly ways in which we could we could do this that would represent the entire country, um, at least regionally. I, I Again, I'm, I'm brainstorming this in real time today. Uh, you know, I started thinking about this maybe 90 minutes ago. So we're still very early in the Dave Brown consulting phase on this. It isn't it isn't fully formed. But yeah, I think I think there's something to be said about the possibility of rethinking our current uh, I do want to mention my favorite bill is indeed the $10 bill, and I wish it was more in circulation. The purple on the $10 bill 
absolutely stunning, absolutely gorgeous. When I get a when I get a ten dollar bill, I, I cherish it. I keep it. I try not to spend it. In fact, I'm gonna go into my wallet right now here as I lean over here and I'm pulling wires out from underneath myself under my microphone. Let's see if I have a ten dollar bill in my wallet right now. What do we got here? Okay, we got a couple fifties, a five, and boom, ten spot. One of the old ones though. Not uh not 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 Viola, not Viola Desmond. So that's that's too bad, but yeah, $10 bill. Cherish that one. That's my favorite bill. What's your favorite bill, Alex? You know, I, I, I do like the $10 bill. I also do like the, the, the $5 bill with the canned arm. I think there's something, uh, I, I've always had a soft spot for, for space, so uh, that always kind of uh, sticks with me. But I, I have to say, you know, I just love the fact of how our currency is made how it's presented like the actual materials especially when you go and you handle any like american Ugh, paper money brutal like it's night and day uh, the canadian physical canadian currency is so much better it looks nicer you get the plastic like translucent uh slip in it you get the the beautiful imagery and the iconography to it and it just feels good in your hands yeah the color the braille markings too yeah, really the, braille. The, the, the the currency is really well thought of I, I loved it when they updated it in the uh early part of the last decade when they made it more tear proof as well or more tear resistance yeah. really really just smart stuff yeah american currency feels terrible terrible in the hand alex thank you for this Thank you. That is Alex Smythe offering some insight on the Daily Poll. How would you feel about changing who or what appears on Canadian currency? You can vote at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email feedback at ami.ca or give a phone call 1-866-509-4545. And feel free to shout out your favorite bill. You know, I like the 10. Alex likes the 5. What do you like? You like the hundo? You like the, you like the C-spot? Spend 100 bucks out there, boom, big money. Maybe you like a coin, you know, the toonie with the polar bear. That's a sweet one as well. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. He has the national weather updates. Here is our AMI national weather uh, report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of snow this morning. The high is minus 8, feeling like minus 19. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, Clouds are rolling in and snow is expected in the afternoon. The high is minus 3. The wind chill makes it feel like minus 10. In Montreal, Quebec, it's cloudy with snow expected and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is minus 2 and the wind chill is minus 13, but there is an extreme cold warning issued for overnight temperatures that are going to feel like minus 35. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with snow starting later today. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour as well. The high is minus two with a wind chill of minus 14. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with some snow beginning later this afternoon. There's also wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is minus one, but with that wind chill, it also feels like minus 14. The Thunder Bay, Ontario, light snow in the morning and then it's going to be becoming sunny as the day goes on. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high makes it is eight, minus 18, but feeling like minus 35. So there is an extreme cold warning in effect. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, there's sunshine, but also bitter cold. It's a high of 25, feeling like minus 41. An extreme cold warning is also in effect for Winnipeg. In Saskatoon, 
it is cloudy as the day goes on. The high is minus 22 and feeling even colder than Winnipeg as it, the, with the wind chill, it makes it feel like minus 43. There is also the extreme cold warning in effect for that area. As we move on to Calgary, Alberta, it is light snow this morning and then it's becoming a mix of sun and clouds. The high is minus five, but still with that wind chill, it makes it feel like minus 29. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with light snow in the morning. The high, minus 13. That wind chill, it makes it feel like minus 30. Up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's sunshine, but extremely cold. The high is minus 26, and the wind chill makes it feel like minus 50. So there is the extreme cold warning in effect for the area. Over to Vancouver, BC, where it's mainly cloudy and a high of eight degrees today. And finally, in, Vic in Victoria, BC, it's similar conditions. It's mainly cloudy, but the high is six degrees. And that's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, Sherry Hanley from Community Food Centres Canada explores the ongoing issue of food insecurity. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Food insecurity continues to be a persistent problem across the country. It has exploded in the rap with the rapid rise of inflation and high cost at the grocery store. It's really important to understand the impact on people who are struggling to access affordable food and turning to food banks and other charities. Sherry Hanley is the Director of Policy and Community Action with Community Food Centres Canada. Sherry, thank you for making time to be with, the be with us on the show today. We're grateful. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So I set it up a little bit in the intro there, but how would you describe the current landscape for food insecurity in Canada? Uh, simply, I'd say it's it's really bleak. It's it's horrible right now. Even this morning, I you know looked at the paper and food prices, the freezes that grocery stores were offering are coming to an end. The prices are going up. We're in a national crisis right now, I would say. Uh, in Canada, we've got easily 5.8 million Canadians uh, facing food insecurity, trying to decide they skip a meal, whether they can afford it. It's one in six people in Canada are struggling with food insecurity right now, making tough choices about do they pay rent? Do they eat food? Do they feed their kids? Can they even go grab a coffee, get their hair cut? Uh, and as you just mentioned, Dave, food inflation is going up. Last year in 2022, it went up 10% and it's forecasted to go up another 7% this year. So for people living on low incomes, and I think even people who aren't, that's a really, really tough um, tough thing to face, and there's really no wiggle room if you're living on a low income or, or experiencing poverty to, to to make the choices you need to to have good good healthy food. Um, and I would just say, as a country like Canada, where we pride ourselves on you know people having access to human rights and and basic rights, having access to food is is one that we all cherish, and we're we're failing. When you identify Sleep. when you identify a number like one in six Canadians, that 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 volume of numbers is staggering. How yeah. how proportionate is the struggle? Are there certain populations more affected than others? Definitely, and I think one of the things we're seeing is that government interventions uh, with different policies have made an impact. So, one of the things we're noticing with our partners across the country, and and even research is coming out, is there's a disproportionate impact right now for people between the ages of 18 and 64 
people who are working age, people who are working hard, but in a labor market that's precarious, or people who are on government assistance that's really outdated and and not as as uh, generous as it needs to be for today's cost of living, um, and also who don't have other government support. So families with children, while many are struggling, they get the child care benefit, and seniors get the guaranteed income supplement or old age security. So we're seeing working age singles between the ages of 18 and 64 really struggling and representing those in deepest poverty and food insecurity. They face uh, one and a half times more uh, instances of food insecurity than the rest of the population. And within that group, you know, uh, unsurprisingly, due to systemic racism and the impacts of colonization, Indigenous and Black Canadians are experiencing food insecurity at three and a half times the rate of other Canadians. And um, people with disabilities, we know that people with disabilities of the Canadians that are food insecure, 50% of those Canadians identify as living with a disability. So we are seeing some really um, disproportionate impacts that need to be addressed. And, and from our side of things, we see it need to be addressed through policy. And um, with people living with disabilities, for example, we're watching closely the Canada Disability Benefit that's mm. going through the House of Commons right now. Yeah, it's something that we're keeping a very close eye on in the show as well. Uh, that process and the timeline to get that money into people's hands as soon as possible. Food banks and food charities play a really vital role in supporting vulnerable people. But what was meant to be a stopgap has really become a staple, a permanent solution. How did that happen? Well, you know, I think that it was a moment in time when there there was a crisis and communities stepped up and, and filled a gap. And I think it was meant to be a Band-Aid, but... Um, you know, I think it, it let governments off the hook. I think that there's bigger policies and politics at play and governments looking to spend less. And, you know, the generosity of Canadians, people were stepping up and and filling a gap and helping their neighbours. But what's happened is over the last 40 years, that generosity has left governments off the hook. And charities, food banks should not be, you know, solving food insecurity. This is, you know, it's not a food shortage issue. It's It's an income issue. And I think there are lots of factors at play you know, between the labor market, I income policies that, that really need a government response. Um, and we need actual government policies. And from our perspective, we're really focusing on income security policies, needing to, to look at, you know, as we just mentioned, the Canada Disability Benefit, making sure that that people with disabilities have, you know, uh, are living above the, the poverty line and actually have adequate access to income to support the daily needs, as well as, um, individuals between the ages of 18 and 64, people do not have enough money right now to to uh, deal with the cost of living that we're all facing. And especially if you're between 18 and 64 without um, good government programs. And for a lot of people living by themselves, carrying the cost of housing, food, mm. Uh, whatever on one income is just impossible today. Yeah, you will not hear me quibble at all with the uh, cost of living, generally speaking, being a huge factor in this and governments being able to step up. We talked about this issue on one of our news panels a couple of weeks ago and we started throwing some spaghetti at the wall, trying to think of ideas <laughs> that could be uh, that could be sound policy beyond simply saying income supplements, affordable housing. What other policies do you think could be explored to address this issue? Well, for, from our side, we really do see this as an income issue. I think there's some some bigger trends, you know, um, in the labor market, looking at how our labor market has shifted over time. You know, I think, you know, I look at, at my parents, they both had had full time jobs and have retired with a good pension. Uh, but how many people do you know today who, you know, are not working on contracts, aren't, aren't working mm. job to job like there's the labor market right now is shifting. And I think it's going to be take a while for, for things to shift back. And there's government intervention needed there. But until 
till we see some changes there in terms of a labor market that actually is allowing people to have a, a living wage or, or live with dignity and humanity, we need some government intervention. And from our perspective, we really think that we, we need some more income policies. So we're working, again, we're following closely the work on the Canada Disability Benefit. I think that, um, you know, it's great for individuals to be donated to, to um, food charities and helping stop the bleed, but there needs to be that engagement needs to go to your members of parliament and your members of provincial parliament MLAs to be calling on actual government intervention to make sure people have the resources that they need to, to live in Canada and with the rising cost of living. We're also working on trying to get government intervention um, at the federal level uh, for, for working age singles. So a lot of people, you know, minimum wage isn't necessarily enough with the cost of living, food inflation and housing prices. Um, you know, hours are not adequate to meet the needs. We need to have a supplement for working age people. People are working hard. They're working multiple jobs and still not able to, to make ends meet. And that kind of builds resentment in government and also just in people's day-to-day -day engagement uh, in the community. People are being isolated um, and just feeling really resentful and desperate in their lives. And I think we need to, as a society, uh, demand more of our, our governments. Sherry, you and your colleagues at Community Food Centres Canada are doing a lot of important work. Where should people go to uh, follow along with that work and maybe even get involved with some of the advocacy that you're up to? Sure. Our, our website, uh, cfccanada.ca, has updates on the work we're doing. Um, and uh, I think that, that it's really important just for people to be engaging with their local members of parliament and demanding more. Um, so our, our advocacy is, is on our website. Um, and... Uh, I think our Twitter handle is a good place for food. Um, so th there's a lot of work that we're doing there and call to action uh, comes regularly through those channels. Sherry, thank you so much for taking some time for us this morning. Hopefully we can uh, connect again down the road and talk about some positive developments rather than the uh, negative landscape that we're currently in. Well, wonderful. I appreciate it. The, the Canada Disability Benefit is in the House today being voted on for third reading. So that's a good sign. And we'll just need to keep the pressure up in terms of making sure uh, the amount is adequate for people living with disabilities to mm -hmm. uh, live with dignity. Yeah, that so. is that is well put. Sherry, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much and have a good day. That's Sherry Hanley, the Director of Policy and Community Action with Community Food Centres Canada. Coming up next, Lisa Arneson tells you all about the Ashe Community Foundation for Black Canadians with Disabilities. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. A bit in trading yesterday as broad-based gains offset heavier losses in the energy sector. Toronto's TSX index slipped 16 points to 20,751. New York's Dow Jones average crept six points higher and the Nasdaq surged 2%. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 55 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 75.25 cents U.S. Asian stock markets were mixed today after the U.S. Federal Reserve said the American economy is moving toward lower inflation, but that more interest rate hikes are planned. The Fed raised its key lending rate by a quarter point yesterday. The Bank of England and the European Central Bank were expected to boost their key interest rates today. Facebook parent company Meta has posted another quarter of declining revenue, hurt by a downturn in the online ad market, but the company's stock soared in extended trading as the company announced a $40 billion stock buyback. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. 
You've heard this question on the show before. What does meaningful access look like? Is it the design of a space? Is it the services that's offered? Is it the consultation process that went in to develop something? But how can you go further to ensure that inclusion authentically represents people for who they are? Here to explore more about the importance of intersectionality is Lisa Arneson. Lisa is the founder of the Ashe Community Foundation for Black Canadians with Disabilities. Lisa, thank you for making time to be with us today. We're grateful. Hello, everyone. So why did you create this community foundation? Well, that's, that's a wonderful question. I created this foundation alongside other um, Black women um, with disabilities. And it was because we realized as we went through our careers, or I am in my 50s now, and that our careers, we hid disability. We did our best not to ask for accommodations because of the experiences of being a Black woman and all those stereotypes and expectations on the how a Black woman should be, how we should not be vulnerable, and we should not be weak, and also as well as um, we're living, working within in, institutions where um, we experienced ableism at the intersection of anti-Black racism, actually at the intersection of gender. And many of us, like myself, have chronic illness or invisible disabilities, and people can't see it, and so they don't believe it. And we found that there was a, there was a gap between the services and the culturally relevant support services initiatives that targeted black people with disabilities and a gap within the black community as well as um, black serving black uh, focused organizations that um, did not have an intersection or understanding of disability as well. So there, was the gap problem and we are aiming to fill the gap of knowledge, the gap of research, the gap of uh, like knowledge mobilization, the gap of resources and all those other things that we discovered through an audit originally when we started by Janelle Anderson, our vice chair. Mm. And we've, that's, that's how we started. The word ashe is a Yoruba word from Africa, Nigeria. And it can be used in modern times or ancient times to mean, so you say, so will be. So Ashe, Community Foundation for Black Canadians with Disabilities, that found, that organization is about, we're going to say we're going to do it. We're going to take up that space. We're going to bring these issues of intersectional identities to the disability community and to our Black community, as well as other um, racialized and Indigenous communities and have these conversations work together collectively, cross movement to, and interdependently to make that change for racialized black and indigenous people with disabilities. How important is research and policy uh -huh. framing in the work that you're doing? Well, um, we started with ideas and thoughts of who we were and anecdotal stories. And then we found out there wasn't research in the area and other than some research done in America, which is not the Canadian experience. Mm. So that's how we framed and started our work. Then work we're working on several research projects right now, and we completed one called the Capacity Building Research Project, the intersection of race and disability. It was an audit across Canada and a research project with a complete lit review with engagement strategies 
and it was funded by Employment and Social Development, Employment and Social Development Canada, the Disability Inclusion Unit. And we have those findings, which laid out seven engagement strategies that were important for organizations being led um, by uh, Black or racialized people with disabilities. So we took a different approach. We were asked at, originally to look at or disability organizations and what they needed to be more um, intersectional in their approach. And we, through our disability justice model, we looked at we looked for the existing organizations, small grassroots that were doing this work inside of their kitchen tables, people with disabilities leading this work as consistent with UN's um, nothing without nothing without nothing for us without us or in the black community we say for us by us which means we are centered mm -hmm. and leaders within our own and using our own voices and experience to move this movement so we realized that and that's where we started our work so that capacity building research project is available on our website at ashe i think we put up the website already but it is available and it gives you a really good insight into black and racialized people who are doing this work, whether mostly volunteer, of course, across Canada. And we found 83 organizations across Canada, including in Nunavut, that are doing this work. And unfortunately, they are not, we are not in the club. And that's one of the, that's one of the findings and one of the strategies to work on um, getting more racialized, this, uh, or racialized indigenous and black um, leaders with disabilities and black community members with disabilities in these disability spaces. But that same thing goes the other way and having more and developing people with disabilities is core. I really loved following um, following Sherry because we know that black Canadians with disabilities through Statistics Canada 2021, that black Canadians with disabilities have the highest unemployment and underemployment in Canada. And that's very significant mm. because what that's telling us is it's not just about disability. It's not just about being black. It's not just about being poor. It's not just about um, being a woman. It's not just about being um, a diverse gender, um, having a diverse gender. It's not about all. It's about everything together mm. that is putting us in this situation and silos, as they once were called, and people doing the work with Band-Aid solutions or adding staff at the lower ends to do the work for racialized people or black people is not moving is not moving the bar for us. So we put out a challenge that there must be and it, it must be money put forward to provide um, professional development, leadership development, additional resources for education to move that needle because we also know that the transition between school, high school, college, university, and employment is low, mm. less than 50% of persons with disabilities. We don't know particularly for black yet, but those are things we're going to be working on. And since we know this, where are the, inter where are the interventions with the government? Because the current interventions um, for supporting persons with disabilities are based on the old model of disability rights, which looks at the individual and is more of a serving the individual perspective. We use a disability justice model, which is has 10 principles. And 
want the main principle at the top is intersectionality. And intersectionality at its core is that idea that you look at the whole person and the intersectionality of the experiences of oppression that individual or that community uh, experiences every day. And so that means is that there has to be space for those with those experiences to voice their opinion, to be leading the research, to be leading the committees, to be at those spaces. And we know that many of these disability spaces do not have black racialized or indigenous people as leading these organizations or even within these boards or leadership positions. We found that many of those people are in lower paid, precarious, part-time and poorly paid position, mm. unfortunately. So we are talking about, as, as Sherry already mentioned, we are talking about significant issues around the uh, poverty rates or the inability to find full-time permanent, permanent jobs because of the disability. But when you compound anti-Black racism and gender-based violence in that, you can see that we start to fall very much below those finding employment, um, securing that employment, or businesses. We're not included in the business world either, but I'm a businesswoman. I have a business, Arnest and Consulting. And we're not in that conversation either around business and disability. And it's unfortunate, but it's a holistic approach. It's a cross-movement cross solidarity approach. It's the idea of using collective wisdom of those voices that have experienced this, those voices that have not been center of the discussions, but have been the ones on the receiving end, probably given feedback documentation at the end to see what else you need, what you think of our services. I want to flip that on. I want to flip that over and say, if you're interested in intersectionality, and you want to serve, you want to support Black people with disabilities or indigenous people with disabilities, I suggest you start with an audit of your organization and take a look at your leadership and your your leadership staff and your board staff, those with full-time permanent positions with benefits. Do they reflect the experiences of people like myself? Do they expect experience, do they have diverse um, disabilities that require accommodations? Do they have um, individuals that can lead the discussion and will be respected and honored in those spaces. And that's the true sense of intersectionality. Intersectionality is not tapping your admin person to come to a disability meeting. Mm. Intersectionality is not telling me at a major, um, a major disability coalition that there is a fire code and I cannot join a meeting. That's the reality of our organization within the spaces we're trying to get into. That's the, that's the reality of the 83 organizations across Canada trying to do this work to support those communities that do not find culturally relevant or safe spaces to, to get disability resources and in their own communities because of that stigma uh, and ableism is very strong because of colonialism it has been internalized within our communities as well. So it is a very difficult space to be in. Um, we definitely are outside the box, 
We've always been outside the box. So we've had um, mentorship and support from many people and foundations. And I'd like to pay my respects to the Honorable David Onley, mm. who was one of our initial supporters, known him as a generous man from the University of Toronto for a long time. And he supported us in getting our organization off. And he joined us for our initial launch and spoke at our, our launch of the Ashe Community Foundation two years ago. And he was a patron. And though and he and he asked if he could be. That's a very special person. And if you want to understand intersectionality, you need to champion our voices. You need to help us um, be in the spaces to do the work that we are capable of doing ourselves. Many of those barriers that you identified are structural and they're ones that need to be dealt with via research and advocacy and action. Lisa, where can people go to both learn about the resources that you're providing, learn about the research that you're providing, but also engage in the advocacy alongside uh, folks with the Ashe Community Foundation for Black Canadians with Disabilities? Uh, a very good question. First of all, we do have a website, and it's ashecommunityfoundation.com. We are in the process of redoing that website and adding a new initiative called the the Black Accessibility Knowledge Hub. In that Knowledge Hub, there'll be three searchable and fully accessible categories that one can search from or add um, uh, or submit the um, information for the, the, the hub as well. One is going to be on disability resources. So everything we know that's currently on our website are things that people come to us that are about working with the Black community or racialized community um, will be put there. It, this is free, of course. And there will be also um, a service directory. So any organization or um, business that is providing um, disability support in one way or another, like it could be psychiatrists, it be, could be psychologists, mm. it could be a business that's a disability specialist, will be asked to submit. And so people in our community want to have a black or a black, you know, psychologist. And we just go on Facebook or Instagram and ask people. It's time that we had one place where people could put their things. So persons with disabilities have the privacy and the self-efficacy to go ahead and look for themselves, take charge of that in private without having to call around and disclose their disabilities and what they need across the board. And then of course, when it comes to research and policy, we right now have our research and policy work on our website that will be housed within this um, knowledge hub and as well as other work that's being done by Dr. Um, Roberta Timothy from the Black Health Lab on co uh, and the work of uh, Dr. Laverne Jacobs, mm. who's now the only Canadian representative on the UN for disabilities. So we have been supported and we will be forming a research um, type of research. We don't know if to call it a co coalition or caucus, but we're working on a platform across Canada. Um, as we're going to call it the National Black Disability, maybe Liberation Collective. And that's going to be an opportunity for organizations that do this intersectional work for black people with disabilities, parents, partners, caregivers, 
guardians to be a part of this work. It'll also give an opportunity to house our youth coalition, youth black coalition, and to provide support to them as well. And it will provide an opportunity for us to work interdependently on policy change, research together, and, and understand the work of others, which means also promoting and supporting it as well. So we're really excited about this. This is launched March March 2nd um, from 6 to 7.30. The first hour is a few speeches, a panel, and then a walkthrough to the, to the hub. And then the last half an hour will be opportunity for feedback for people to tell us what they are missing, what they'd like to see, or what they think of it. Um, this Saturday, this will be our third annual town hall, Voices of Blackness and Disabilities. And that will be um, Saturday from 11 to 2 p.m. It will start It will start with a welcome from Minister Carla Quattro. Very happy with all the support that we have received through um, Employment and Social Development Canada, through the office, the minister's office, through the office of the new chief accessibility office, Stephanie Cadeau, who is able to make it, and as well through other offices across um, governments and networks like Imagine Canada, Taboo Community Health Centre, um, SETSI, which is looking at social enterprise as an as a to diversify our income because we're not as we know black we know through a research project called unfounded done three years ago that black-led organizations were receiving less than one percent of all the research money across canada so they're rectifying that issue but unfortunately it did not have a disability lens mm. so we are still exactly so we're still at that place where we're still receiving a very we, for the last three years we received zero money towards our disability cause through disability funding but we are very pleased to i don't know if we can officially announce it but i guess i will <laughs> we'll be receiving core funding um for the next three years through uh the minister carlo carla quattro's office and um through the disability inclusion unit social inclusion so we are thrilled to be able to offer full-time benefits for our our one part-time staff and all our volunteers and other part-time staff that are working precariously through an organization that vows against that from writing policy without it. So there are so many opportunities. So if you want to join us for our town hall um, this Saturday, um, everybody is welcome. The town hall is after the panel and the panel will be three, um, three individuals with disabilities who are black. Dr. Roberta Timothy of the, the first Black Health Lab will be speaking. Um, she will also be talking about her research that she's done over the last three years on the effects of COVID on Black community. And she did, and she has results on how they look for disability as well. And then we also have Ira Abram, who's the one working on our, our new website and searchable hub. And she will be talking about her experiences as a deaf, um, partially deaf um, business owner. And then we also have Bernard Akutu, who is our vice chair, is our director of community. He is partially sighted and works for CNIB. 
and he will be speaking about his role on Ashe as the Director of Community and Partnerships. So I am very, very happy about this first half. And then the, the last part of it will be the town halls divided into adults with disabilities who are Black, youth under 30 with disabilities who are Black, and then um, a, pa a panel or town hall for Black, for partners, caregivers, um, guardians, and um, parents of children, adults, seniors, and um, youth with disabilities. All will be facilitated, all will be recorded, not the town halls, but we do transcriptions. Mm. It'll be completely, completely accessible. There'll be French translation and we record this and we use the words within these town halls that we do. And in every event that we do, we, we transcribe and we use them towards our policy, our research, and we find where our community feels there are the gaps and we prioritize their voices in our work. Lisa, the work that you and your colleagues are doing is so, so critical and so, so important. Thank you for taking some time today to tell me about it. And hopefully we get a chance to connect again down the road. Absolutely. And I have to finish with Happy Black History Month. It is officially Black History Month. Uh, it was yesterday. And we are thrilled to honor our ancestors during this month, as well as the ancestors and in our Indigenous community. That is very well put, and a great and a great uh, a great a great point to end on, Lisa. Thank you again. That's thank Lisa, you for having me. Our pleasure. That's Lisa Arneson, the founder of the Ashe Community Foundation for Black Canadians with Disabilities. For more information on the foundation, you can visit the Ashe Community Foundation.com. I'm going to spell that out for you: A S E Community Foundation.com. A S E Community Foundation.com. Coming up next, we'll change gears a little bit and have a little bit of fun. Jenny Bovard's got some tips on enjoying a March break staycation. That's how you avoid them busy airports. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It may only be the second day of February, but March break is right around the corner. The fact is, spring break for a lot of college students is like a week or two away. Jenny Bovard is one of the people who's already thinking about some plans for the spring. And Jenny's here from Halifax to share some ideas on how to make the most of it via some staycation. Hey, good morning, Jenny. Hey, good morning, Dave. So, Jenny, a lot of people would typically plan a trip during spring break, maybe somewhere particularly warm, but not everybody's got the cashola to do that. So, one of your what 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 are you thinking in terms of some uh, some some uh, some staycation plans for yourself? Staycation is not normally a word that would be in my vocabulary. Um, and this is the first March break that I've had off of work since school. Uh, that's a very long time uh, because now I work with with uh, with students who are blind or visually impaired. So I've got all of this time off and normally I would jump at that chance to travel, but I'm pretty apprehensive to travel right now. We've all heard those recent horror stories, lost luggage, canceled flights, 
there's so much unrest in so many parts of the world right now. So I'm pretty like apprehensive. And you mentioned another good point. Uh, I, you know, I've got money saved up to travel because I've always got it on my mind. I've got some credit card points that I can use, mm -hmm. but you know, I might need those things just to feed myself in the coming months. So the cost of everything is just outrageous. So staycation, help me save some money, maybe save some stress at the airports, et cetera. Um, and the, my first idea comes from the fact that my, my bed, my bedroom furniture is old and I need to replace it, particularly my bed. I value sleep a lot. Um, and so I, uh, I, I've identified it's time for a new bed. And that sort of was the catalyst for this idea like, hmm, I have March break off. So maybe I'll take this time to redecorate my bedroom. And this is, uh, it doesn't have to be a big job. I plan to throw some paint on the walls, change the atmosphere a little bit. I'm of course going to get a new bed and a new mattress maybe some new side table mm -hmm, side tables mm -hmm. and lamps but nothing wild right i really just want to spruce up the bedroom a little bit and you know for those who don't want to spend money on paint don't want to get into all that work changing the vibe and the atmosphere in a bedroom can like it can just be as easy as moving the furniture around rearranging some things changing the artwork and the photos and i'm coming around to the idea that this could be fun at all ages because I'm thinking back to when I was a kid and every few years or so I liked to um again spruce up my bedroom yeah change the, change the change like, the change the feng shui yeah and one cool thing that I did was I painted when I was a kid I would paint my windows with watercolor for a really fun effect and it washes off of course and one year I decorated my ceiling, I painted it dark, dark blue, and I put those glow-in-the-dark stars all over the place. So again, any age, this can be something fun to do. Yeah, when I think about redecorating a bedroom, I do think about things like side tables. It's, you know, it's, it's, there's a little bit of flow to it, right? It's it's something that I've considered as well for for my bedroom because my my bed frame broke a couple of years ago and I haven't bothered to replace it yet. I'm going very like college mm -hmm. student lifestyle with box spring on the floor <laughs> and mattress on top of it. And I'm not complaining, but as I rapidly approach 40, 40 Jenny, I kind of think to myself, you know, adults have proper bedrooms, Dave. We've got to think about the bed in particular, Dave. Your, how you sleep affects your whole life. Yeah. <laughs> well, for what it's worth, uh, the mattress on top of box spring on the floor has been uh, nice because my old uh, bed frame was very creaky, so I no longer creak every time I move in the middle of the night. So there has been a small advantage here, but you know maybe it's time to be a little bit more adult about these things. So I'm putting I'm putting that as some advice from here, Jenny, in terms of some staycation things. But maybe folks don't quite want a honeydew list or a project as their staycation plan. So what's some other advice you have for uh, things they can do close to home? Well, in my research, I was pleasantly surprised to find so many free and low-cost events and activities, and not just here in Halifax. I poked around the country um, because people are listening and watching from everywhere, I would think. Um, one thing that I found locally as a fun idea, free Latin dance classes Ooh. for all ages. It's open to everyone, and it's got live music. So how could I not be how could I not be intrigued when I when I saw that so it led me down a road of like what else is going on in the rest of the country and I found 
uh, in Toronto Public Library, and pretty well every public library has so many great offerings. Something that jumped out at me at Toronto Public Library was you can pet some hands-on exotics, and I think in the photo it was a snake, but I'm pretty sure I read about some more cuddly, fuzzy creatures that you can pet <laughs> as well. And here in Halifax, we've got good old Gus. He's a 100-year-old tortoise at the Museum of Natural History, and they always have fun, cool exhibits. So poke around locally. Every public library I found to be such a good resource. There's a huge variety, an enormous variety of stuff that's low cost or, or no cost at all. Classes on improving your public speaking. There's some fun trivia and obviously lots of stuff for the little ones too. So again, when I was little, I spent a lot of time at my public library. Mm -hmm. So I'm. it's all kind of coming full circle with this March break plan. Big <laughs> supporters of public libraries here on this show. We, uh, we believe very much in the merits of community that public libraries can build. Jenny, this one kind of goes without saying, but if we're staycationing, why not maybe pop into a couple of restaurants or cafes in your neck of the woods, maybe even try something new? Well, we love food. You know we love food, Dave, <laughs> but I think I love baked goods the most. And thinking on this idea more so, I've decided I, what I think I'm going to do is maybe every second day or so during the March break, I'm going to pop in and visit a local cafe or a bakery in town for more of a snack, something smaller and lighter, instead of going out for a full-on meal, which is truly a luxury for most of us mm -hmm, these days. Mm -hmm. So again, if I'm going to save up to travel once it's more kosher to do so, I'm going to save my dollars um, and just have a quick bite to eat at a couple of local places. There's a Cantonese bakery here that I've been meaning to try, and there's this cute place called the 5k cafe that I've not been to yet and there's no reason because it's like a six kilometer walker bike on my favorite trail but thinking again back to my childhood some of my best memories were on summer break March break as a kid visiting my neighborhood bakery and I was I would always get the big jam thumbprint cookie mm -hmm. so just another fun idea for for you know anyone just get out and and have something nice to snack on and support a local business while you're at it. Jenny, thanks for offering up a couple of fun ideas here. It's much appreciated and not to pull back the curtain too much, but uh, we're talking again tomorrow on your podcast, on the Low Vision Moments podcast. So looking forward to catching up with you in about uh, 26 hours. Yeah, it's high time that, that you come on the podcast. I absolutely cannot wait, Dave. We're going to be a blast. Yeah, looking forward to it. Jenny, thank you for your time this morning. Much appreciated. Thank you. That's Jenny Bovard with some March Break Staycation ideas. Jenny, as mentioned, is the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast, which uh, I'm recording an episode with her tomorrow. Super pumped to be doing that. Coming up after the break, I've got the regional news update, and Brock Richardson is stopping by for a sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.